Good morning. I'm John, and this is the Daily Wrestling News Show for October 24th. In the last quarter of 1999, the WWF was in firm control of the Monday Night Wars, and WCW was flat out floundering. So a shakeup occurred that didn't seem possible just a few months prior. A new creative regime would take over just before one of the bigger pay-per-views of the year. So how did WCW's first pay-per-view under the new regime go? Hey there, if you're listening to this, then chances are you love wrestling. And if you care to continue the conversation with me, John, and other listeners of this show, then I invite you to join the Daily Wrestling News Show Facebook group. Just search for Daily Wrestling News Show or go to facebook.com groups slash wrestling news show and click join. We cannot wait to meet you there. The group is brand new, so if you're one of the first to join, don't be afraid to say hi. Now, on with the show. As Ryan detailed for you earlier in the month, Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara jumped to WCW contractually on October 3rd. The initial plan was for them to have a feeling out period for most of October and jump into the creative process after the Halloween Havoc pay-per-view, which was set to wrap up storylines already in motion. But when the October 11th Nitro posted not only the lowest rating in years at 2.6, but the widest gap between Nitro and Raw, with Raw comfortably more than doubling that rating at 6.1, the collective patience ran out. So Russo and Ferrara jumped in early and got to work on the October 18th episode of Nitro. The buzz alone was enough to shift the ratings almost three quarters of a point in WCW's favor, bringing them to within about a point and a half of Raw. After being doubled or close to it for the majority of the last six months, this was reason for rejoicing in the WCW offices, especially when you consider that wrestling on that particular Monday was up against New York Giants Dallas Cowboys football, and Yankee Red Sox playoff baseball. Backstage in the WCW locker room, however, things were not quite as rosy. Confusion and displeasure were the common themes. With multiple crews simultaneously taping pieces to be aired later in the evening, performers adjusting to much more detailed scripts than was the norm, and some wrestlers going into live segments that had been changed multiple times since they arrived to the building that day, and still not knowing whether they were playing the heel or the face as they went through the curtain, disorganization was rampant. Not a good look for a go-home show heading into a pay-per-view. And things weren't any more consistent as the pay-per-view opened. Shivani kicked off the telecast by telling the audience that the newly crowned tag champs, Conan and Rey Mysterio, were stripped of their titles due to an injury to Mysterio. To crown new tag champs, we would see a three-team, false count anywhere street fight between Harlem Heat, Knobs, and Hugh Morris, and Conan and his new partner, Billy Kidman. The in-ring action started with Disco Inferno successfully defending the cruiserweight title over Lash LaRue. Nothing crazy here other than the fact that Disco really wasn't a cruiserweight, and that he had recently adopted a stunner as his finisher, calling it the last dance, but nothing really to write home about. Match number two was the previously mentioned three-team street fight. The finish to this one might have been the perfect encapsulation of the Russo-Ferrara era of WCW. While Hugh Morris was in the ring landing a very pretty No Laughing Matter moonsault to put Conan through a table, his partner Nobbs was backstage with both members of Harlem Heat. Stevie Ray would flatten Nobbs with a life-size plaster mummy from the props department, remember this was Halloween Havoc, and Booker T would cover him on the concrete for the three count and their record 10th WCW Tag Team Championship. 
As one referee was leading Harlem Heat back to the ring with their hands raised, the production crew completely missed another ref counting Billy Kidman's pin of Humar's clearly well after the pinfall that took place backstage. David Penzer would clarify the backstage pin for the crowd. So I guess the camera following Harlem Heat and Knobs backstage wasn't being broadcast to the audience in the arena. This was either confusion just for the sake of confusion or incompetence. Harlem Heat's ninth reign had ended just that past Monday on Nitro when they dropped the titles to the filthy animal team of Ray and Conan. This tenth run would end 24 hours later when they dropped the titles back to the filthy animal team of Conan and Kidman. Getting back to my point about this angle summarizing the Russo-Ferrara era of WCW, I think that summary would be the simple sentence, why did they do that? Next up is DDP and Kimberly coming to the ring to fill the quota for double entendre and innuendo for the night. The previous week, the Nature Boy found himself in a hotel room with Kimberly and gave her a spanking. After way more references to spanking and whipping and whipping things out than anyone needed, DDP's new Andrew Dice Clay-inspired persona gets to the point. His match tonight with Flair would be a strap match. Okay, there was some good wrestling on the card. Eddie Guerrero of the Filthy Animals, Perry Saturn of the Revolution, put on a good match for 10 plus minutes before Ric Flair caused a DQ by attacking Eddie with a crowbar. Bret Hart, on one leg in terms of storyline, carried Lex Luger to a decent match. Luger had cost Bret a possible world championship by taking a baseball bat to his ankle during a match with the champs Sting the previous week. With Hart still noticeably limping, Luger got him to tap to a single leg crab by cranking on the already injured ankle. There were some awkward turns on this card too. Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit entered the building together midway through the show. They were met by Perry Saturn, who was wondering why his Revolution stablemates had been out of contact recently. Malenko tells Saturn to shove it, as seemingly him and Benoit are separating from Saturn and Shane Douglas. Then a few segments later, Malenko blasts Benoit with a chair, causing him to lose his television title to Rick Steiner, and Malenko hugs and walks off with Saturn. Swerves just for the sake of swerving. There were some bad feelings caused too. As Ryan explained earlier in the month, Hogan refused to quote-unquote do business and put the champ sting over properly, leading to Tony Schiavone earning my respect for maybe the first time ever by verbally bitch-slapping Hogan for his tantrum. But was it all a work? A very respected wrestling newsletter looked down its nose at its readers by floating the idea that the incredibly awkward segment where the advertised main event didn't actually happen, suggesting it was totally planned and we all should have known better. The purpose of this fuster cluck, according to the experts, was to establish Hulk Hogan as having a bad relationship with the new powers that be, and give him some time off. The idea was floated that Hogan would return in a stone-cold-like anti-establishment role, and went as far as to say he might even drop his moniker of 20-plus years and return as Terry Bollea. Well, if the search engine of this very newsletter's own website is worth a damn, there was no further mention of this pipe dream scenario in the future. And I think we all remember just how real and how ugly things got between Russo and Hogan the following year, so make of that what you will. 
I wanted to say that there was some bad wrestling on this card too, then sarcastically point to the fact that Goldberg and Sid Vicious fought for more than seven minutes. The fact, though, was that this wasn't a terrible match. It was an aggressive beating of Sid by Goldberg that seemed to be doing the job of turning Sid face by virtue of his courageous performance as he bled all over the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Vegas while losing his US title and undefeated streak. But all that goodwill was squandered in one sentence when a few segments later Mean Gene checked in with Sid backstage and told him how much the crowd appreciated his gutsy performance. Sid would reply, what makes you think that I care? Now well, that'll teach me to try and guess the Russo booking style. The last two matches though were a graduate level course in what the hell is going on here. The only scheduled match left on the card at this point was the strap match between DDP and Flair. The first 12 plus minutes were fine, even if a little plotting at times. But in the closing seconds, DDP choked a bloody Flair with a strap and hit a diamond cutter. He covers, and Little Nate counts one, two, and tries to stop himself before the three, but goes through with it when Flair barely twitches, and it becomes clear to him that he's not gonna kick out. Robinson looks about as confused as any person I've ever seen in a wrestling ring. I'm not even sure who screwed up, but to cover it, DDP gives the ref a diamond cutter as if to say, hey, what took you so long? As Shivani and Heenan are just as confused as Little Nate and the rest of us, the quote of the night comes from Heenan. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Not because it was the funniest quote of the night, but rather because he would repeat it about a half dozen times throughout the show. Now just before the strap match, Sting came to the ring, and in an attempt to make up for the main event that the Vegas fans weren't getting, said that he didn't come to Vegas for a day off. So after the DDP flare match, he would be back in the ring and looking for a fight from anyone who felt like challenging him. Not a very heel champ move, which is what this incarnation of Sting was, a heel, but on this night, it was far from the oddest thing to happen. So Sting makes his way to the ring, and his open challenge is accepted by Goldberg. As Shivani and Heenan get excited about the pairing, Shivani makes it clear that this is not a title match. He even says, thanks for telling me, as he presumably just got word through his headset from backstage. You know, the people in charge? Then, it seems all at once, everyone, including the competitors and announcers, realized, we don't have a ref in the ring to go along with our two competitors. Heenan remarks, well, we know Charles Robinson isn't going to be back out here to referee. And before Shivani can even finish agreeing with him 100%, who comes running from backstage to ringside? Yep, Charles Robinson. Little Nate doesn't hold up the title either. Penzer doesn't announce this as a championship match. But three minutes later, Spear, Jackhammer, 1-2-3, Goldberg wins. Charles Robinson, who is wearing an earpiece, gets the 20 pounds of gold from the timekeeper and hands it to Goldberg. Heenan says, don't look at me. Shivani follows with, well, I guess he's the world champion. Sting has a good complaint. He never said he would be defending his title. He was just out here for a fight. So how does he file his grievance? A scorpion death drop for poor little Nate. And the last words uttered before the screen went mercifully to black by Bobby Heenan as he watched the same referee take a finisher in two consecutive segments were, sure, why not? 
So how did the first Russo-Ferrara pay-per-view go in WCW? Well, the pay-per-view buy rate was a complete success. It was up roughly 100,000 buys over the previous offering, Fall Brawl. But the reviews were brutal, which was fair, because quite frankly, watching this mess was brutal. The buy rate seemed to be a factor of buzz, morbid curiosity, and hope. As the on-screen product continued to be slapdash and sloppy, those buy rates went right back down into the tank. But it all started with Halloween Havoc on this day in 1999. This has been the Daily Wrestling News Show for October 24th, 2022. We'll see you tomorrow.